Welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm the one of the one co-host that is actually watching the Super Bowl, Eitan, <laughs> and I'm joined by, as always by the hater of sports that got an H in the GSB class, and he tells us every week, Carl. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? I truly do not hate sports. I I hate this narrative of me hating sports, but <laughs> sports are fine. They're fun. They're just not for me, but I don't begrudge them. Please watch the Super Bowl. I'm sorry that we connect, cut into this somehow. <laughs> you literally scheduled this and you were like, oh, and I'm sorry, you know, wink, wink, if it's at the same time as the Super Bowl, but I appreciate you trying to convince the listeners that you don't hate sports. Yeah. Well, also not watching the Super Bowl with us tonight is our guest, Christina Troitino. Christina, thank you for coming on. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. Um, it's an honor to similarly not understand or care about sports, so I feel <laughs> seen and heard right now. So thank you for having me. Anytime, please come back. I mean, actually, I don't know why I'm telling you to come back. We haven't even recorded the episode. You might be a terrible guest, but I don't think you will be. I could be. I could let everyone down. But you know what? I will do it with a smile, and it is an honor to be here. <laughs> the honor is all ours. <laughs> so Christina and I met at business school. So I mean, she also met Aton at business school. But Christina and I met first. And we met during the summer before business school on our Slack group where we started talking about seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey on 70 millimeter film, something I always wanted to do, and Christina did that summer. And then our relationship grew from there. We became friends once we were actually at school. We started hosting a lot of dinners where we paired different courses with movies that we wanted to show people, from Clueless to our mutual favorite movie, Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> and just our our friendship grew from there. And Christina is one of my best friends from business school. I'm so glad that she came on. Oh my gosh, Carl! Um, please, it's an honor. Um, it's so fun to know you and to geek out with you and to serve people food to movies that are completely inappropriate for dinner theater too with you. So please, this is so fun. So happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Christina has a pretty varied background. She has bounced around between all the big tech companies. So you've got Amazon, Facebook, and now YouTube on your resume. And which something that will be relevant in news in a little bit, she worked at Marvel in college, which is my favorite thing to say about her because it's so fun <laughs> and cool. And she was doing that while going to NYU. So I'm so jealous of that experience. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty fun being paid in comic books. What can I say? So very excited to talk about it. <laughs> I have to say, as the third person in this conversation, it's great to have both of you here because I think, at least from my perspective, you were, like you said, the two kind of resident movie experts of the GSB. It was like, oh, Christine and Carl are planning something else. And so I, I really look forward to talking with you and for you to share your all of your expertise with me on top of all of the listeners. And, and more prudently for the episode topic this week, Christina was also the GSB Sundance queen, kind of not by choice, but more just by like relative expertise relative to everyone else at our school. But Christina showed us the ropes every time we were in Park City and made my first experience at Sundance really magical. And I was able to like work with her to make that happen for Aton our second year. Oh, yeah. man. I have to say also, Christina, you went like above and beyond. 
like people at business school could plan things only for their group and you like organized everyone was gonna know you posted it on slack you reminded everyone like this is still happening anyone interested please come super inclusive so really appreciate it oh man of course i'm i'm totally selfish in my ends i just want to watch cool movies with cool people forever <laughs> so i am so excited to have that with both of y'all and for the broader stanford community so of course of course so speaking of cool movies, well, that's actually a pretty terrible segue for this, but <laughs> let's let's talk about the Globes for a second. So the nominations came out this week, and in typical Globe, Golden Globe fashion, they're a mixed bag, but I feel like they're more mixed this year than in the past. What do you guys think? For me, the weird things were kind of the most obvious, very quickly. The biggest thing I realized, no, uh, I May Destroy You in TV, mm-hmm. which was a big surprise for me. Hamilton being a multi-nominee was very surprising to me. I still don't understand. I know this is very basic, but like the Globes do this weird thing where for movies and TV, there is a leading actor and actress for both comedy and drama separate, but for supporting actor and actress, they are combined. So there are less nominees for supporting. So it's just like this, it's full of inconsistencies. I don't know if it's the foreign press being like, you know, we're weird, we're hip, we're cool. I don't know in my mind why they're French and they do things differently, but it was just weird to see. It's super weird. It's like, yeah, I, I mean, I feel I frankly have been so distracted by this news cycle because Carl and I, we've been talking about our new favorite Twitter account, which I don't know if this is like too much out the gate, but we're talking about <laughs> Emily in Paris. Have, have we, are we all on the same page about this amazing, amazing Twitter account? I don't think Aton knows about the Twitter account. You can fill I, us in. I, <laughs> I, I might know. Ariella okay. told me. And I think okay. when she filled me in, we didn't know it was a joke. So we had like a two hour drive somewhere. I was like, there is no way. What? Netflix did that? They knew? And now she's tweeting about it. But please. Yeah, Christina, tell us the story. Oh my gosh, this is an honor. Okay, so for anyone who doesn't know this whole saga, and Carl, please keep me honest if I goof troop these details. But effectively, uh, someone just flew in hot, like a like comedian writer on Twitter, and just started saying that they wrote Emily in Paris. And like they changed their Twitter bio and all the stuff. And they started like tweeting this hilarious stuff like, um, yeah, like originally Emily in Paris was at, about like an Indian American woman, but then I changed it to a white girl and now Netflix is sending me $8 million checks. Of course, it's like egregiously hilarious, everything. Um, but what's really amazing about this is like people retweeting it, like outlets that are supposedly, we should say, because who knows at this point, because she's like a master troll, um, but outlets like BBC, <laughs> like emailing her for interviews and stuff. And it's like hilarious. Um but uh, I think it's like such a like sign of the times and like how relevant but also not relevant awards can be at the same time. It's just like get her a show. Like I would watch anything she makes. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that apparently she she updated Wikipedia, the page for Emily in Paris, so that her name shows, and she screenshotted it like before they took it down, and that was like her proof that she was a writer. I love it. Any anyone can write their own Wikipedia. People don't know mm-hmm. that, uh, so. <laughs> You can do pretty heinous stuff. It's it's pretty awesome. She's low-key my hero is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of Ayo Itaberi, who's also a Twitter persona. She hosts the podcast Iconography. I love her. She's a great follow. But her bio forever has been that she's like the showrunner of the show The Kaminsky Method, which like 
nobody's ever seen the Kaminsky method. Who like <laughs> she could totally be the showrunner. So I just assumed she was until like six months ago when I found out that it was also a joke. But I think in this case, it's more egregious that people aren't picking up on on the joke around Emily in Paris. It's very funny. Carl, what did you think of the nominations? Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming the father is somehow related to the wife, right? Like the Glenn Close movie that nobody saw. This is the Anthony Hopkins movie that nobody saw. Um, but, I mean, in, in reality here, a lot of weird stuff on here. Like uh, the acting nominations for uh, Hillbilly Elegy are particularly surprising for me. At this point, I don't know. I, nothing here is really a surprise as to what was included, I think. But my I'm, my guess right now, like, if you're holding me to the fire right now about, like, what's going to go to Best Pictures for the Oscars, I think it's going to be Mank. Not necessarily because Mank's a great film or even a film that a lot of people are, like, really behind. But it just seems the most, like, Oscar-y Best Picture film of these. Like, it's a movie about movies. It's black and white. It's a passion project by a guy who normally wouldn't get nominated for his, like, R-rated thrillers. Um, I mean, give or take a, a Gone Girl, but Gone Girl was never going to win Best Picture <laughs> in any world. Um, but, like, nothing really has that much energy behind it as, like, a movie this year. It's just a bunch of disparate things that we are trying to nominate and award. So, I don't know, it's going to be a long and weird award season that I'm going to have to pay attention to until I actually have to talk about it on this show more. The one interesting thing that I think is worth highlighting is that the in the Best Director category... Three of the five nominees are women. Yeah, which is it great. is. Emerald, Emerald Fennell, or Fennell, I don't know, how, for Promising Young Woman, Sundance Movie, Regina King for One Night in Miami, and Chloe Zhao, Zhao? Yeah. Zhao for Nomadland. Uh, and I thought about it this week because this is a weird tangent. I watched for the first time Point Break, <laughs> and I didn't realize that it was it was directed by Catherine Bigelow, mm -hmm. who for me it's always going to be the one, like the ex-wife of... Uh, James Cameron, who beat him in the Avatar year. Yeah. So, like, that was like, is she the last woman to win Best Director? She's the only I think woman so, right? to win Best oh, Director. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There I you go. So, that was the. I think, based on like all the press and PR, it, this is Chloe Zhao's award to lose this year because No Man Land has been the, the festival darling. And, I mean, my galaxy brain theory here is that. Disney's going to buy her an Oscar because it is a Fox Searchlight picture and she's directing the big Marvel movie this year. So I think it's in their best interest to spend as much money as they can to get Chloe Zhao an Oscar to beef up the, the MCU. I can see that. The only the other one was, I mean, Regina King is coming hot from her uh, yeah. role in Watchmen and the Golden Globes are mixed TV and movies, even though Watchmen, I guess, was in last year's Golden Globes. The, the, yes. weird, the timing is weird but that could be the other one could surprise me and i yeah I, I think she's got a certain amount of heat around that movie which i think is surprising a lot of people so potentially i'm not counting her out perfect in changing to a topic that i see no way to transition to <laughs> i just wanted to briefly briefly talk on like the whole thing with gamestop and the stock this past week and you might be asking why the hell are we talking about this in stock and development but so for those who don't know, there was this whole movement of uh, basically retail traders or regular people that started buying GameStop and AMC, that's another connection, I guess, because this Reddit group told them to do it, right? To fight against hedge funds that were shorting GameStop, and it, it 
went up from like $30 to $300 and something. And it was like a huge thing. But apparently, literally the week after, somebody sold... I don't. I, I need to ask you how this works, but somebody sold the script, or somebody sold, somebody bought the rights to the idea about this movie, and a ton of the moderators that used to own or manage that Reddit group came back to try to like get money from this movie, and it became a whole thing in the internet about how do you manage, uh, you know, who owns things or how to moderate content, and the new mods moderators were like fighting, and I just thought it was very interesting, which leads me to this question. To, if any of you know, what does it mean somebody bought the rights to this? Like, who owns the rights to this? Why are there rights to this if it's just like a, you know, something that happened? Right. Like, didn't they buy the rights before, like, anything was technically written? Like, how could you write something that fast mm-hmm. even? I mean, I'm biased. I have, I mean, I read so You're much Reddit. Well, I write. Also. <laughs> I read Reddit. I should say I've been banned from subreddits for posting my own content. Um, so I'm biased. <laughs> I have so many issues with community moderation on Reddit. Um, but yeah, like to your point, like who dictates who owns what? It's like so complicated. And I think Reddit's so interesting because it's like a community where people, they feel so much like ownership and such like a vested stake. But at the end of the day, it's still a social media platform like any other in many regards. So, um, yeah, I think this like moment of like seeing its impact, like really come to fruition in a very real, like Mm -hmm. what more can be real than people's actual livelihood, their money. Um, I think it's like really interesting moment. I... To answer your question, I have no idea how the rights on this work. I assume who's ever developing these projects probably went through to a few moderators and and asked them and, like, went to specific Redditors. I'm not sure. I also think that what's going to happen here is that we're going to have, like, 20, like, sub-sub-sub Adam McKay level things come out where everyone's, like, trying to have... Subreddits, Carl? Uh, uh, yes you had it come on it was in front of you sorry yes sub 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 reddits i mean just we're just gonna get a ton of terrible scripts out of this just like every other moment of the pandemic and we're gonna it's just gonna be a glut of bad streaming content that nobody actually wants to watch it'll be like the uh the firefest documentaries except there will be dozens of them and they won't both actually be good so what you're saying is that somebody said i'm developing this and then there was an auction and somebody bought it. Like we could develop one if we were famous producers and sell it at the same because there is no exclusivity, right? This is just like I think this is whatever. Unless they're going to specific news pieces, like this is just something that happened. So like I think if somebody writes like the definitive coverage of this for I don't know, like The Verge or something in six months and they publish it, then I think that, that would be a source that they could use and and actually get the rights to but here i think it's just more a bunch of people are like we're capitalizing on this news event and it's such a obvious thing that happened that i don't think they need necessarily primary source rights i think it's just a bunch of people trying to plant their flag saying we're trying to make this story and get people to pitch the actual scripts got it so this is why things like two steve jobs movies coming out on the same year happens just whoever is developing can sell it based on whatever they write well, I mean, okay. if you look at that, um, the Kutcher Jobs film was adapted from material that basically stopped in 1984 around 
uh, jobs being fired slash the Macintosh being launched. Uh, whereas the Danny Boyle film was adapted from the authorized. Uh, yeah, Isaac Jacobson, that? like the yeah the Walter Isaacson book. Walter uh, Isaacson, Isaac Jacobson. What the hell? Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I have a signed first edition of that book over there. So. Um, I of course you do, it. Carl. <laughs> weird, weird, weird flicks, but really weird flicks. <laughs> sure, to say the least. Hey, I, I mean, like... I I love the portrayal of Wozniak as a dude who drinks milk in literally every scene of that film. I don't know if you guys yes. have picked up on that. It's upsetting. <laughs> the trope of men, the trope of men who drink milk too much is I'm I'm over it. Oh my gosh, Carl. So, so Carl is showing us his book. <laughs> You, I mean, you said it as if you had like a first edition of Harry Potter or a first edition of Lord of the Rings signed. I have a, I have a signed first edition of Bad Blood. Is that as exciting as that? I mean, I, I also have a signed first edition of Bad Blood because I went to the same event, so it's not exciting. <laughs> I'm excited for both of you. I see both Thank of you. you. I think it's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I agree, Christina. I, I remember that because it reminds me of Brad Pitt in the Ocean's Eleven movies and how he's eating all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Milk it's is real. such a like, good, this. creepy character trait. Like um, in, in Get Out with Allison Williams where she's drinking the milk and eating the cereal. Like it's just very creepy. It just photographs poorly and uh, it's something you associate with children drinking even though obviously anybody can drink milk. It's, yeah. I definitely hear you on that being a, a good creepy character trait. Yeah, don't get me started on the milk trope. I'm like, it's like a trigger point for me, frankly. And we're not at the Sundance part of this episode, but there was a milk-oriented <laughs> film I saw. Um, oh no! <laughs> so there's always one. There's always one. That's okay. The let, let's stick into that for a second. <laughs> what do you mean by milk-oriented film? Like a film that like the poignant characterization of someone is milk. I just feel like in like every <laughs> festival, there's always one. There's, I don't know. Maybe it's just because also I write a lot about like plant-based foods and like obviously mm. milk, there's like so much to unpack there in our ecosystem. But like, I just think so much about when milk is used as a characterization. The YouTube channel, The Take, has talked about milk as a trope, which makes me feel understood. So I'm not alone. I, you know, it's common. Um, but <laughs> can unpack that for a while. <laughs> Once I was on a job interview, um, this was last year. I don't think this is why I didn't get the job, but it could be. And it was at lunch and <laughs> like alternative milks came up. And for some reason, I started talking about cockroach milk. Where yeah. like you started talking about cockroach? I remember this, Carl. <laughs> oh my god! So apparently, cockroach milk is like a uh, protein source of the future. So yeah, nothing. They didn't seem too weirded out about it. I think they were impressed from like a like what I'm thinking about when it comes to investing in things approach. So cockroaches are the future. You and Indra know you agree. You know. <laughs> anyway, this is about we're talking about media. We're not talking That's about no, agriculture. Like, you know, they have intersections, and here we are. Tangents are cool. Tangents <laughs> are great. All right. Well, to rope us back a little bit before we start plunging down a milk-based film rabbit hole, uh, the one last thing we wanted to talk about in news this week was WandaVision, the Marvel show that is, I guess... I guess Aton and I are always just going to have a show that we're checking in with. That's whatever is the dominant pop culture show at the moment, and kind of 
I think it's interesting to talk about these things as they develop because it shows what people are thinking about with our culture and how quickly it's changing. But this week, there was a really exciting development in just how people are approaching superhero franchise. And it's based off of a very tiny spoiler in the most recent WandaVision episode. So Eitan, you want to walk us through that? Yeah, I'll do that quickly. So this is officially our WandaVision, WandaVision segment of the week, Carl. Just shaking. <laughs> yes. Sounds, okay, perfect. So if if you forget about the comics for a second, which I know it's not easy, um, the Marvel movie universe, I don't want to call it DMCU for now, it was owned by a couple of different studios. These, uh, when Marvel wasn't owned by Disney, they sold, the, for example, Spider-Man to Sony. They sold X-Men to Fox. And they kept, you know, what at the time seemed to be like the least famous superheroes, like Iron Man and Thor and things like that. And they were able to build the Avengers. And they have been able to work with Sony to bring Spider-Man into the MCU. But kind of one of the last pieces that they didn't have was X-Men. Last year, during the acquisition of 20th Century Fox, they suddenly have them in-house. And what's complicated is that in general the movies have been very different. They haven't had any characters that live in both universes, except basically for one, that is Quicksilver, the son of, in the comics, of Magneto and the brother of Scarlet Witch. And in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we see them as brother and sister, but you never hear about their father. And in the X-Men Universe, Scarlet Witch doesn't exist. But they say that Quicksilver is the son of Magneto. So it's like this weird thing where you have two actors playing the same character basically at the same you know, the same year they had movies about it. And there's been some talk of how is Disney going to bring the X-Men into the fold? Because they just basically, they didn't reboot X-Men a couple of years ago, but they started the story again. And I know this is a long introduction, but in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Quicksilver is dead. He died in Avengers Ultron. And in the latest version of WandaVision, where she's creating like this reality, it's unclear, but she's like creating this reality, the other version of Quicksilver appears. The X-Men version of Quicksilver is shown as her brother. And I thought it was a very interesting, this is kind of the first thing I want to talk about. A couple of weeks ago, we had this weird cameo with Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian, right? And he was like super huge and important, but he appeared there for a second. Here, suddenly, we have this cameo where it's not as huge for the story but it means a lot in t- like in the mind that i think carl you and i think about and probably christina also of oh wow they're bringing these two universes together it's kind of surprising because they're they're finding a way to connect them and they're doing it in this what i thought what we were texting about carl like cool personal way that it's still like unclear how they're gonna do it because like the timelines are all messed up and even Wanda, like, when she sees him, she's, like, confused. Like, she doesn't recognize... He doesn't recognize him. So, like, it's just this cool version of, of the world. Have you both seen at least the scene, even if you haven't seen WandaVision? What did you think about it, or in general, about the development? Yeah, I, I saw this scene because I just saw... I knew there was a very special cameo because everyone kept shouting that there was a very special cameo coming up. And... For me, well, wasn't it uh, wasn't it Elizabeth Olsen who said it was like on the level of Luke Skywalker appearing? And for me, that yeah. was just alarm bells of like, okay, the Luke Skywalker thing was already like the biggest death of culture moment for me in the last year of just like, oh, everything is just going to become recycled garbage. And 
So that's what I expected. It was just going to be like, you know, Doctor Strange or something. I was like, wow, another movie star appearing on the small screen. Nicole Kidman did this five years ago. Wow. Uh, but what in fact, it's just Evan Peters, this weird actor who has played a character in other X-Men movies appears. And, you know, this kind of goes to what we were saying, talking about last week around how every attempt to build some like new master planned universe that's not the marvel universe has failed miserably because it's just so hard to do it like without it being forced or just poorly planned in the end because you're trying to rush Mm -hmm. to catch up and i think this is kind of proving that the mcu is probably going to be the only example of that because they're they're now rebranding everything before the the big avengers endgame movies as the infinity saga and i think that's gonna be like a button where it's just like that's one arc that they told that was super cool connected thing but now disney's just gonna acknowledge the existence of all these other things and call it a multiverse just like they did in the comics because there's no way to like have this much momentum around narratives and stories and try and keep them all going without fragmenting it in some way and i think that's just a really clean and natural way to just be like cool we'll continue production and characters and stuff in different ways and move on and also maybe make it like a bond thing where we can just recast an actor without like nobody being able to play tony stark forever because robert downey jr did it 100 years ago like or or people too expensive but yeah yeah Yeah. christine i'm curious from your perspective also from i mean from your comic past and seeing suddenly coming to fruition in this multi-million everyone is talking about it and caring about it suddenly and everyone now know how what house of m is you know i don't know yeah, yeah it's interesting so I, sh- I should say full disclosure i haven't seen the latest of wandavision i'm shamefully behind so with the transparency of that i think it's really interesting i mean like i tell people my first week at marvel comics in college which was like so formative met some of my best friends they're such a blast um Bob Iger stepped on my foot. It was like right after the acquisition <laughs> happened. It was literally like, like change of guard. Like it was like right then in that moment. But you could like even feel then like the strategy was like really changing. And I remember even being then, uh, there then, it was like 2010, 2011-ish. And um, I remember I worked as an intern. So I was in like what they call like the bull pit. And I was like one of the only business interns. Most of them were like uh, like comic book editing, kind of that kind of department. And I remember them like uh, we didn't get paid, obviously, at the time. This is like such a yesteryear problem. There's like Disney can't get away with that now as much. But um, we would get paid in comics and someone just like was like, hey, guys, you guys should really get into this comic book. It's going to become like the next biggest thing. There's this like raccoon that's like super feisty. It was Guardians of the Galaxy, and I was obsessed. And I was like, guys, like this is going to be so cool. And everyone's like, this is insane. There's no way. But it was, like, so intentional. This was, like, you know, so many years before. That was, like, all, like, you know, obviously, as we know, the legacy of that film now. So now every time there's, like, this, like, weird, like, uh, I mean, if you really read the comics and are loyal to them, like, there are so many stories and characters in the Marvel Universe, for lack of a better word, that are secondary to tertiary that end up becoming so important and they work their ways in, it's like, it's very premeditated. So whenever there's like, to your point, this like weird overlap, I'm like, huh, 
I like wonder truly like behind the scenes, like what's the long-term trajectory that's like five to 10 years out on this one. Like even Thor, like if you're really loyal to like, like, you know, seventies, eighties, Marvel comics, like Thor's not relevant, but now in the world we live in now, Thor is so important. So like whenever these weird things happen, I'm just like, huh, what's going to happen in five years that brings us together? So mm-hmm. that's my long-winded way of saying like, I'm curious to see how this all melds. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's been interesting because I think most of the movies have at least, you know, at least closely followed something from the, from the comics, at least in some general sense, whether the characters or the arcs or the ideas or things like that. Do any of you see a point in the near future where the movies can actually, or the MCU now, I guess, cinematic, both movies and TV, can come up with their own things? Or do you still see like being super influenced by comics? Again, WandaVision per se doesn't exist in the comics, but like House on M, that is like this story that you've both to- like talked about, is like where she has the twins... And there is this multiverse and she can pull people from one to the other and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's still very influenced by the comics. And one, it's a finite resource. But the second one, we suddenly have, like, what, 70 hours of Marvel content now? In one kind of story that they kind of have to say, you know, we're going on our own. We're going to decide. Kevin Feige is going to be like, you know what? I, I own this. Do you see that happening soon, later? Yeah, I think what's really interesting with Mar, like uh, I should say, like comic book fans as like uh, like beta testing ground for content, is that like these people, like in the truest sense, and like I should say, metropolitan areas or like really any town that has a comic book shop, these are like true loyalists, like going into the shop on Wednesdays when you get the new releases, like very committed to the genre and their stories and everything. And if people drop off a story, like you really quickly see it in those sales. Um, and I mean, I think like comic book storytelling, it's rooted in like the most basic storytelling in human history, like mythology and like, it's like true, the arcs there are like gorgeous and like very, there's like a lot of fertile things to work with. Um, but even like, I mean, so that's in terms of like the true narrative. If you think about the visuals, they say, at least this is what they taught us when we were at Marvel. If you were to strip away like any of the dialogue bubbles and you just looked at panels, like, without all of that, you should be able to still understand what the story is. And I think if you have both sides of that, like, you have gorgeous, like, written stories, and you have incredible visuals, and you have, like, an audience that is, like, as loyal as is warranted for the quality, like, man, of course Disney should buy you. Like, you're going to have the best mm-hmm. stories. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think there's just so much to work with. Like, to me, I think it's, like, slam dunk home run but i don't know carl i'm interested for your thoughts i'm ranting i could geek out about comics yeah. forever all good no i think i'm on the same page as you christina ultimately there's just i don't think it's a problem it's not like game of thrones where there's like a finite finite um, or harry potter like a finite amount of content from one person who's dictating the entire vision of this thing just at this point there have been so many writers and creators on every superhero that's out there marvel dc independent who who have you and i think that just there's so many ways to remix and reimagine things that are like the seeds that have been planted but at the same time every like you said like every story that we've seen adapted has kind of not been quite like the plot arc that you saw like if we take marvel 
like the Civil War arc that they use from the mm-hmm. comics is the X Men, the X Men and people that want to protect their identities versus Tony Stark wanting to kind of make do the the Incredibles thing and have people be personally responsible for their actions versus in uh, Civil War in the movies, it's just like an infighting between the Avengers because mutants don't exist. So I, I think there's just so many ways to pull from the source material. And like, if we look at Batman as a case study, every version of Batman we've had in like movies and TV has been based on some prior art in Batman, even though we have like the incredible gay camp of Schumacher all the way to like the moody uh, pulling from Frank Miller, Dark Knight stuff. So I don't, I don't think there's a lot of, worry to me about like things feeling boring or not fresh from from comics yeah that makes sense i think we were talking a little bit about this last week right but in my mind even though they play kind of a similar role i think of kevin feige so differently that what i think of kathleen kennedy not not in how i respect them but when i think of the role that they play i see kevin feige as being super or significantly more hands-on and super involved in things and kind of more of a, as a, I don't know if the word is like guide or whatever. And Kathleen feels a little bit more detached. Like she's, she owns everything and she decides, but she kind of lets other people do more things. But I think it, it boils down to what you were saying is like, this is such a unique capture lining in the bottle. Like we're going to look back at this and just be like, this is ridiculous. Like they build this over two decades now. And, mm-hmm. you know, you watch these, Doctor Strange and has nothing to do with with Iron Man and I was talking with a friend with Kevin friend of the pod yesterday like they're bringing mutants into the Marvel like until now the MCU did the the thing of mutants didn't exist right Mm -hmm. like one that was supposed to be like they experimented with her with like an infinity stone or whatever and now it's like again now you have this new thing right when they created the Guardians of the Galaxy like oh now in space and now this thing and keep going going and it continues to work and work pretty exciting so i i think one other thing we wanted to talk about here briefly was that this is just also another example of the power of release schedules and not dumping everything in a binge format like netflix does like this is the the fact that people are week to week debating like what the future of franchise filmmaking is going to be based off of like whatever Disney put out that week is pretty impressive from like a, a spin perspective. And it's just, uh, yeah, we've talked about uh, Christine. I don't know if you follow us too closely, but Carl and I are sticklers about like cultural impact. And when we think of Netflix and the ability to binge, like nobody remembers these things. Like, yeah, sure, Stranger Things is great for, like, a week, a year, right? Even Bridgerton, like, this month. It's like, oh, yeah, it's huge. And then nobody's going to remember. And then these things that Disney is doing, and they can only do them because of how they work, right? Which is very different. It's like, we know we're going to have the audience. We are very low volume. We're going to force you to wait. But then suddenly people are going to talk about this for two weeks, for two weeks, for two months. And then a week after, the Falcon and the Soldier drop their trailer in the Super Bowl. And then that's another month. And then, Lucky, that's another month. And they have us in their grasp, uh, in, I don't know if in a good way, but they're, they're kind of bringing back this, uh, you have to watch it on Friday or you're going to know the spoiler that I think hasn't happened, at least in Game of Thrones, probably. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I think even with WandaVision, like, it's so fascinating. I have, like, coworkers who know 
literally nothing about comics. They'd have never cared. But they're just like, hey, have you seen the latest episode? Like, do you know what's going on? <laughs> I'm like, what? What is happening? Yeah. Like, they don't know any, like, I'm new at my company, I should say, too. So they don't know anything about my background in the comic books regard. And I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. Like, that's awesome. I mean, that's the spirit of comic books. Like, mm -hmm. you go and you get the new single issue midway through the week. And if you haven't gotten it by Thursday, Friday, someone's going to spoil it for you. And I love that that's, like, permeating broader pop culture in a way. Um, I mean, it makes it special. Like, I mean, it... it, it if it's ephemeral, it makes people care and like want to tune in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of special. So yeah. It's going to be interesting. That I think the last thing I wanted to say in this topic is I think Disney is going to bring back like a time release. Like they release these things at like 3 a.m. Eastern, I think, and midnight Pacific. And it's just ridiculous. I feel like they're going to start doing like a prime time. It's going to be difficult because it's global. But I think they're just going to have to say, like, this happens at 5 p.m. on Fridays. And yeah, really I, build up that mass, that volume. I think that's going to be the case. People can always VPN to another country to catch it 12 hours earlier or pirate it. But I don't think that's really going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, Christina, I think you helped us set the record for the longest news segment on our show. So thank you for that. It's an honor. And what can I say? <laughs> But, I mean, we did talk about milk some, so I think that that's a great segue <laughs> into our broader Sundance discussion here. So, as I mentioned, Christina was Sundance Queen, and that's why we wanted her on to talk about this. But it's also because Christina probably did more with the virtual Sundance Festival this year than anyone that I know of. So, Or I anyone just, in general. Yeah, maybe. Not only that you know of. Yeah. So we really wanted to just bring her in, have her on to talk about Sundance generally, what it is, why it matters, why it's such a weird thing. And then I think transition into talking a little bit about the highlights from this year's festival, both from the programming and format perspective, and then also like what you saw that you liked. So with that, I want to pose a question, first of all, which is... Why do you get into Sundance and why do you care about Sundance? Yeah, so I should say, like, um, I love movies, obviously. We all love movies. Movies are the best. <laughs> but I think one thing that was interesting for me was, like, a few years ago, I remember asking myself, like, what is stopping me, like, really, from going to Sundance? Because I always was, like, do you really have to be like an industry person? Like, can anyone buy tickets? Whatever. So I did research and quickly I realized like, oh, like it's not necessarily cheap, but like it seems like more of like a project management kind of situation. Like if you like really game the system right, you can unlock it. So to me, like I love project management. I love squeezing my way into things. I was like, I think I can knock this out. Like I think I can figure it out. And I did, and I did it with friends, and I had so much fun. And again, this was like rooted in like, I just really, I love movies so much. But I had such a like incredible experience at my first Sundance um, that of course, when we got to Stanford, I was like, I want as many people in my life like to do this with me so that we can see great movies forever. And I mean like, Sundance is like, like, like first big festival of the year. So like if you really love movies and you really want to see stuff like as soon as it comes out, like you really turn through content, it's great. Now like is Sundance the most relevant? Like questionable. Of course it's been watered down. 
like over time and everything, but you can't deny that there's like really great movies there. Um, so for me, it's like always been a blast. I feel like I have like a million Sundance stories I could tell. But at the end of the day, it's oh. like totally, yeah, it's like it we, we can get into it. But at the end of the day, it's just rooted in like, I just like really love movies and I love experiencing them with people. And I think this year where it was virtual reminded me more than ever, like what I like about Sundance is it's like, I want to see really cool stuff as soon as it comes out. Like it's just that. So yeah, that's the long and short of it. I was saying, I think last week or two weeks ago, that one of the parts that I enjoy the most about it, and I've only been once, was like, when I think of movies, I've, I was always very driven by like, you know, popular stuff. And it was like one of the first times that I allowed myself to be like, I don't know anything about this movie. There is no trailer. I've never heard of anyone. And it doesn't matter. Like, let's just go watch it. And I I, I think I really enjoy that because it's it's like a very primal movie experience i feel like like literally just get exposed to the things that you probably wouldn't see some will make the movie some will make the headlines right promising young woman is nominated for a ton of oscars but it's still kind of a a very cool yeah just way to think about them i feel like that most people you know don't get to or don't have the chance to yeah i mean for better or worse like i mean Sometimes, like, I will just see movies without seeing the trailers. And I know that sounds crazy, but, like, I saw Black Swan without seeing a trailer before. So, like, I went opening weekend and I was like, oh, this must be a feel-good film. It's Natalie Portman in ballet. And I was dead wrong. So if you if you see, like, every movie in your life in a theater like that, um, then you're going to love Sundance because that's exactly what it is. I love, like, not really having that much context and then being delighted or confused, like Carl and I, we saw one of the weirdest movies of my life at Sundance without much context. Um, <laughs> Jumbo is about a woman who falls in love with an amusement park ride. So, like, you know, that's like Wait. the surprise and delight of it all. That is, is that movie about Carl? Ah. Uh, <laughs> wow. And Sink. Okay, fine. <laughs> oh, Monster Sink. It Inc. could be. Eitan's already... Eitan's already teasing next week's episode, which is, <laughs> spoilers, going to be an exhaustive deep dive between into the worst attraction Disney's ever made called Superstar Limo, which became the Monsters, Inc. ride in Disneyland. So, yeah. I'm familiar with next this week. work. <laughs> big fan. Big fan. Hey, I love a Michael Eisner fever dream as much as the next gal. So, call me old-fashioned. You know, Christina, when, when we were thinking about ideas for the podcast, Carl and I toys with just do a michael eisner episode not sorry podcast not an episode a podcast like literally just a series of only michael eisner only the disney world i'm here stuff. if you Hello. guys if you guys make a second one i'm listening you know <laughs> I, I will go i will watch youtube for hours on michael eisner and stuff anyway you know we're talking about sundance but if you want to go into michael eisner i'm here for it i just love a kooky entertainment personality okay that's gonna be the patron <laughs> Yeah, as someone who kind of just ingests context all day because I'm just reading everything and then on Twitter and then on Letterboxd and then watching trailers and just inescapable context, it's so nice with Sundance just to like go see something that like there's no way of having context for it besides maybe you recognize a filmmaker that is part of it. But Sundance is so interesting because it is 
still kind of the first touch point for a lot of new filmmakers and a lot of new artists to come in. They're being elevated to a national and global stage rather than just kind of on Vimeo or YouTube or, or wherever they might have been like honing their craft. They're actually, they have a product that is like a feature product that can be exhibited at any scale. And it, it's so cool to see p these new talents and voices. Obviously, like Christina, as you've alluded to, it's gotten a little bit more corporate machines kind of wiped off from that. But still, it's like a, it is a great place for at least critics and streaming services and whatnot to discover new artists. Yeah, and that's a good segue to a question that I had for both of you, which is like when you think of festivals even more broadly or Sundance specifically, like how how do they work? What do they mean? When you say, you know, I go here to get exposed to new artists, it's like how do they do it? Why do artists go to them? Uh yeah, just what kind of, what's the place that they have on, on the movie world? Even we don't. I have a very cynical view of it, which is, it's, is my same view around awards, which is it's all just PR to build buzz around films and the people making them. Sundance is unique because it's in the middle of nowhere relatively, and it's a bunch of people putting on casual ski clothes to hang out at theaters for a week. It, it's a much different vibe. But at the end of the day, most of these festival films at the Sundance scale are like trying to find distribution. Even at the Cannes scale, they're trying to find distribution. And then by the time it's Venice, Berlin, Toronto, a lot of international films don't have distribution. But it's also kind of like your your big prestige Fox Searchlight projects that that, that want to be pushed as like the award front runners. So it's all like a game to to play to either get distributed or get awards attention but i mean i think that's a critical part of the ecosystem is to show them in this kind of teased rollout yeah i think like anything else like when you get that nice little stamp that you were like shown at sundance that makes a huge difference even if you don't get mm -hmm. picked up for distribution then and like for me another reason why i liked going to sundance in the first place was like as a writer and i should say not even one that's paid to write about films itself it's a great place to network like um people go there with the intention of promotion and it's just like a nice place to just meet a lot of interesting people at once um so yeah i think it's just like it there's like this like aura around it and you just kind of like want to be in the orb and uh yeah i i mean in the nicest way uh you know people just want to be picked up there and they want to be associated with this incredible force that it is in my right. introduction so i did fail to mentioned that Christina is also an accomplished writer in the food sphere and the culture sphere and everything like just seek her out online we'll plug some of her stuff later on but uh I've read a lot of her stuff on Forbes and she's great yeah and Christina is the type of person that is going to send you a message that is going to say like hey guys reservations just opened to go to like Noma in Copenhagen in six months who wants to come with and you're like hello which is like again <laughs> I just like cool people and I like culture and I just want to hang out and talk about food and movies with all my friends. What can I say? It's great. Okay. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So kind of, I, I feel like the way I think about it at least is an oversimplification of things. If a studio or a big producing company has a project, they go outbound for directors and find something to do. If you're a small-time director and you have like a passion project, you'll probably do it on your own and then figure how the hell to get it into people's 
eyeballs, I guess. And then you kind of go to the festivals to try to find these types of things. So I think, uh, at least from my two years that I've been a part of Sundance and festivals more broadly, uh, I like this part of like the passion project side of things. It's been interesting to see the directors talk about things and how close they think about them and how much time it's taking them to develop it or how um, scrappy they were with productions or how to get things done, which was kind of very exciting. But it's it's also interesting because it, it definitely does feel kind of like a, you were saying, like it's PR and it's kind of, it's not gatekeeping, but you get the stamp and you kind of made it, right? So they, they play a huge role. And I think also, Christina, to your point about networking, I was also super surprised by how easy, quote unquote, it is to go to Sundance. Like you can just go and buy a ticket and they're $25 for each screening. But at the same time, you get there and it's like incredibly bougie and all of the main streets like full of things that you can't access most of them because they're super exclusive and while it's still very easy and i was able to go there and like see people you see the actors and you see the directors uh it still feels again it's like we were, we were i think we're lucky to be able to go and pay and take the time to get to park city one of the nicest ski resorts in the country to think about movies right but it it does have kind of these two sides of kind of letting the people that are not part of no i shouldn't say it that way like people that are trying to get through the door that's how they get it while at the same time being super kind of establishment and you go there to sell to the disney's of the world and the netflix of the worlds and the amazons of the worlds and it's it's a it's a fascinating place from like a culture creation perspective i feel like that's kind of what i found uh, interesting about it christina i find it very interesting that you framed this as a project management challenge because it absolutely is. And that's something like the second Aton started putting his mind towards going to Sundance the first time, I was like, why didn't I think of this being perfect for him earlier? Because he has the exact same mentality around like the going to theme parks, which I mean, I share with him where it's just, there's so many variables in trying to go to like experiences where there are so many people around you that are also trying to have those experiences that the more you can do to minimize like the, the entropy around those variables, the better time you're going to have. It's literally a fast pass uh, optimization strategy. It's it is. Same thing. Yeah, it is. Easy. I mean, there's like, if you're super exorbitantly wealthy, you can get one of those like five, hmm. $6,000 passes to Sundance, but who has the money for that? Um, so, like, I don't know. I feel like Sundance to me is like an entertainment RPG. And it's like my <laughs> my task to unlock it all. But it is so fun. I feel like every year I, like, figure out, like, a new thing about it. Um, I'm just, I'm fascinated by power constructs in every setting. I feel like Sundance is, like, one of the most interesting ones I will continue to try to understand through the years. So is a Chase Sapphire reserve card the equivalent of, like, buying a new RPG game and then paying for a DLC that lets you, like, skip a bunch of stuff? Exactly. I did get a Chase Sapphire, mostly motivated by Sundance, so it worked. So what can I I say? I want to get into those type of specific, like, stories and things and tips. But before, just thinking, again, a little bit of high level. When you think of Sundance, I think you touched a little bit on it. What role does it play, for example, as compared to like a Cannes or a Toronto or a Berlin or Venice? When I think of those five, I think those are like the five. But are they different? Are they kind of the same? And it's just kind of the season or 
yeah, how do you think about them? Maybe not from the perspective of going, even though I know Carl wants to spend his honeymoon. Well, pre-COVID wanted to go to Cannes for the honeymoon. Uh, but how do you think about them in that's what they play in the movie world? Sorry if I spoil it. I can cut that out. <laughs> oh, I mean, we're not going to, to Cannes for the honeymoon in 2021. Maybe we'll go next year whenever things... Who knows? But that's, that's not on the table this year. But with to, to your question... Yeah, I think it's what Christina said. A lot of it's around timing. Like There are festivals this time of year. Like I think Santa Barbara has a film festival this time of year, but a lot of it's kind of the holdover from last year's award stuff as we go mm. into this award season. Whereas this is the very start of award season. Like you have this and then South by Southwest, I think is the other big indie one. A little bit from Telluride later in the summer. But really the path from like for the smallest movies to get recognized on the biggest stage usually starts right here at Sundance. Is there one that you pay more attention to? Like I've heard of the Palme d'Or in Cannes. I know Parasite won that last year. Uh, because I, I think for me, when I first thought, heard about Cannes like 10 years ago, I just thought it was like the Golden Globes. I didn't think mm. it was a festival. I just thought it was like awards. Uh but any any other things that makes them interesting or different for people or for studios or the, the palm door is always like a, a the palm door is nice a nice touch as far as like a filmmaker because it is kind of the artiest award a filmmaker can receive and every once in a while you do have like a Bong Joon Ho win the palm and then go on to Oscar success but that's very rare usually it's like a bunch of Europeans trying to look at where they want like art film artistry to go to and then trying to recognize that so. I mean, like, the weirdest one was a few years ago. Okay, honestly, I'm about to say this just so I can flex on knowing the, the, the director's name, but, um, like, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, won the Palme d'Or, which was a film by uh, Thai filmmaker Apachat Pong Wewasithikul. So nobody's heard of this guy outside of, like, the, like, slow cinema art film world. And it won the Palme d'Or. Carl... That wasn't going to go anywhere from there. Carl has some weird flexes today. I'm <laughs> impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like sat down and phonetically made myself memorize that name because it's just like a great flex. I was in an art museum last year and he had an exhibit in the museum and I was just like saying, oh yeah, let's go check out the Apachakapong where we see the goal exhibit. It'd be great. Everyone's like, yeah, sure. Definitely that yeah. guy. I agree. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. I'm ready to get specific. Let's talk Sundance. Let's talk yeah, stories. Well, well real quick, Christina, did you have anything else you wanted to say about oh, yeah. the other festivals or anything? No, I think I, I think you hit it like the nail on the head. I mean, effectively, like it's kind of like the first stop for films that, like, in twelve to eighteen months, are going to like win Oscars. Like, the world will understand their impact. So it's kind of like, you know, like it doesn't have to be like the starting point, but it kind of is for so much of like culture. So it's like kind of exciting to see it happen um, for better or worse. Um, so yeah, to me, that's why it's super exciting. I go to other film festivals. Like I love Tribeca too. Like, but you know, mm. it's kind of nice to just fly in hot and just see what happens. Okay. I, uh, getting specific to Sundance, I'm going to take you whichever way you want, but maybe an interesting way to start, Christina, is like, how does a day in Sundance look like at least for you like walk us through the different parts of going to Sundance well 
Okay, again, this is from like project management mindset. So I always have a spreadsheet. Even this year, I had a spreadsheet and it was virtual because I'm a loon. Um, but it starts really early. Um, so for me, like my peak Sundance days in a normal year, like still four or five films in a day. Like I'm still, my like number one motive is to see like a lot of really great films. Like mm-hmm. whatever, however you'll splice it. Um, so start the day, see some great mo- like movies. And then I always try to like splice in like some good events or meetings. So what I'll start doing in like the weeks before Sundance is just like, like truly like DMing people, emailing people. Like I will just shamelessly try to find my way into like whatever event or like cool meeting I can get into while I'm there too. So I'll still try to like articulate my days between that. But honestly, it's like a lot of like, uh, sprinting and waiting, like trying to get to a theater, waiting in line, seeing a movie and trying not to pass out, like pounding coffee, like getting to this event, whatever. And then like at night, hopefully there's like some cool event or something too going on. But it's like truly exhausting. Um, but yeah, I think um, it's such a blast. It's like honestly just like pure adrenaline for days on end. Um, yeah, I-, I feel like every year like – Every day at Sundance, I have, like, one very cool memory. Um, And so I feel like it's, like, almost like a dream state all day because you're, like, so exhausted, but so much fun Mm -hmm. is happening. Yeah, and just so much of it is the logistical challenge of Park City being this ski town 45 minutes south of Salt Lake City where normally, like, they don't need a massive infrastructure of public transit and Ubers and everything to get everyone around and then all of a sudden you have all these people trying to get into movie theaters that are all not next to each other it's not like there's a big multiplex that everything's at some of these theaters are 40 minutes from each other all like when it's all said and done so you really just have to be vigilant about yeah like you said sprinting and waiting like you might have like 20 minutes to get somewhere but then you're gonna go sit in line waiting for the screenings to start but you don't want to be late so you're gonna go sit sit and wait yeah and i'm gonna double down on the like the comparison with like a theme park i think i've never been to park city before and when i got there it really feels like a theme park like Mm -hmm. both visually and the types of things that you have to do because all of the main street literally like all the brands just take over the street so there is like this restaurant or this cafe or like a Again, we've talked about, like, the Chase Lounge is, like, a huge thing. It takes over a gallery. But I remember last year, you know, the Canada Goose one had free coffee. And then this other one had, like, free soup and free hot chocolates. And this one had, like, music. And you can walk up and down and just trying to have a great day. And then, yeah, Ariel and I, we run into Tony Collette. And then we know that Carl Smotko is trying to look for David Sims. And he finds him and takes a picture with him. And he's like... (laughs) Again, it feels like you're not in the real world. And one of the, I think, Carl and I enjoy about theme parks, and Christina, you can tell us well <laughs> how you feel about them, but it's like this, you feel like you're out of the world and you're part of like this special moment in time that only happens for this period of time. And it's, uh, the movies are a huge part of it, but then, yeah, just walking up and down the street feels like you're part of like this, I don't know, cool, special moment. I think Ariel and I, this is very specific to the GSB, but for anyone who doesn't know, like the business school has like this whole thing about traveling and everyone is traveling all the time. And there's this group of people traveling all the time. And we didn't do anything in the GSB except going to Sundance, like a month before COVID started. 
And I feel like it was the perfect type of thing that we would enjoy because it has a mix of sightseeing and movies and things we care about and people we like. And I don't know, it was it was very, very cool. Yeah, I feel like there are like um, like few definitive moments in the year where you feel like you're like existing in a zeitgeist. Like you, mm-hmm. I like, I mean, for better or worse, I know it also has like so many aspects of it that are whitewashed and manipulated mm-hmm. by like big companies. But at the end of the day, like you get to see like a movie show for the first time that will like have a serious cultural impact. Whether or not you agree with how that happens, it's very interesting to see. Um, and it's, it's, I feel like also too, like a true marker of time, like there have been so many interesting, like folks I've like talked to for like even writing purposes that I was like, Hey, like, I think I heard you were also at Sundance last year and they're like, Oh yeah. Like I was here, whatever. Like I remember I ran into a guy in LA and Carl and I went to his pop-up at Sundance and it was like such a marker of time. And I feel like there are a few times that that ever happens. So it's super unique in that regard. Um, but yeah, I, Again, hope my friends continue to go so I can continue to see them. And we acknowledge this passing of time together with Cool Culture. <laughs> and I, I think the one of the weirder effects of it being the center of the zeitgeist for a week is that there's this Sundance bubble around a lot of things. Like, mm-hmm. the best example of it is something like Blair Witch Project, where just it blew everyone away as this weird found footage cheaply made thing at Sundance and just kind of propelled itself forward from that. But you could also have anything from like, uh, what was it? Late night a few years ago had a huge acquisition by Amazon and then just kind of landed with a thud on Amazon prime or something like birth of a nation where, uh, Nate Parker, uh, had this big barnstormer of a of a film appropriating the like awful D.W. Griffith movie as a title, and then between that and the typical release, uh, a lot of allegations came out around uh, around Parker and his sexual misconduct, and just he was pretty obviously an awful person, and it just tanked the film. So it's a long year in the film release year from Sundance to when people are actually seeing this in mass. And the bloom can fall off the rose pretty far. That's a good way to put it. Like, it's interesting, too, especially as, like, if if you love movies, like, you go into Sundance being like, yes, there's going to be some great stuff here that will win Oscars, but there's also going to be some duds. Like, I might see, like, a cool art house movie that I will never hear from again, a la Jumbo. But there's also, like, stuff that gets, like, super hyped that, like, nothing happens. Um, that reminds me of, like, the Zac Efron movie from last year. Can you remind me? And he played, um, shoot. Ted Bundy. Yes. And it's, that was, it's like, yes. It's not extremely loud and can incredibly close, but it's exactly the same vibe of that. But with, like, what is it? Like, extremely vile and shockingly something like that exactly oh yeah no we don't have to like, wax poetic no one listening to this should watch it it's a terrible movie but i remember like it was the hottest ticket in town at sundance last year and they're like oh my gosh zach efron's taking a leap whatever mm-hmm. and it was like a garbage movie it was awful <laughs> and so it's like nothing that shows that sundance is impervious to it which has like you know of course like some people take its credibility away for moments like that but you're right like just because something feels very hot in that moment, you know, I, 
the festival can make or break it or like, you know, just people watching it and forming their own autonomous opinion from these privileged people who can watch it early on. I don't know. It's really interesting to see how it unfolds. That was also interesting for me as a, <laughs> I told Carl, I'm a very good audience for movies because I'm very easily pleased. My bar is very low. As long as I like have a good time and I'm not looking at my phone, it's great. So like all the movies that I watched last year, I really liked. And it was interesting to get to go out of the movies and like a day later look at the reviews. I mean, like, oh, like people didn't really like this movie or they love this movie that I thought, again, I thought it was okay, but then nothing happened. And all the way from things like, I remember seeing Never Really, Sometimes Always that I've loved and I've talked about on the podcast that is now on HBO and I live by and people really liked it. But then we watched um, uh, Uncle Frank, which Ariel and I really like. And then a the day later, like, it was very problematic. And now it's on Amazon. And now apparently, like, people like it. And we also watched um, Four Good Days. Do you remember this movie? Mila Kunis and Glenn Close. Like, it was one of, you know, oh, you had right. to go see this movie. It's yeah. these people. And it hasn't been, nothing happened with that movie. No. I don't know who got it. It never getting distribution. Nothing is happening. So... It's really interesting for me where I think, <laughs> I, Carl, I think we only watch one movie together, but Christina, every time we talk about movies, Carl has like this beautiful rendition review that, you know, connects life and gives meaning to, you know, the universe. And I get out and I'm like, oh yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was a good score. So it's, a, it's also an interesting <laughs> place for me to be part of these things that are going to have the impact. And for me, it's, I love it, but it ends up being like, oh yeah, I love it. It was fun. It was interesting. I don't know. And that's your truth. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think to your point, like, there's this movie is that you're like, oh, my gosh, this is so awesome and nothing happens. Which is why when we're preparing for this podcast, I was like, oh, I'm going to dump my notes from Sundance this year. But it's because, like, I remember seeing films, like, at my first Sundance that, to your point, nothing happened with that. I was like, mm -hmm. where'd that go? So now I feel like I need to, like, chronicle everything. Like, detail notes. What do you think? Like, let's see what the reviews end up saying in the year or whatever. Because I'm like, I, I don't know what's going to happen to these. And, like, will it be, like, an on-demand thing? Will it come to theaters? Will nothing ever happen? Like, I need to chronicle my thoughts or else it's like, if a film shows at Sundance and it doesn't get picked up for distribution, did it ever really happen, one might ask. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's great. I, I mean, let's get into stories. Carl, Christina, any like fun stories? It can be specific, it can be general, it can be movie-related, festival-related, Uber from Salt Lake City to Park City-related. Let's take it anywhere. <laughs> well, Christina has seen me harass people in Park City, and it was always fun. We went to, so there's a, a alternative festival called Slam Dance in one of the hotels in Park City where it's, it was started as a rejection of how corporate Sundance was becoming and trying to recognize like truly indie filmmakers. And to that end, Steven Soderbergh, whose career was started because of Sundance because of sex lies and videotape and the reception there, he is actually pivoted to like pushing this festival. And he's, this was in his like shooting things on iPhone phase that he was in. And we went and saw the premiere of high flying bird at this festival at which point like it was a logistical challenge getting there and we weren't sure if we were going to get in or get to see it or be able to have our baggage in there and we did and like steven came in he like gave a quick spiel and left and it was kind of sad that that's like all we got of him and then he was standing outside the hotel 
And so I just went up and got, started talking to him and got his autograph. And it was great. So that's like the sort of magic that can happen is if you're really targeted with the people you want to like meet, you can do this. I mean, Jason Momoa, I saw him walking down the street and he had two bodyguards half his size. And it's like, I'm not going to go talk to him and his bodyguards. But Steven Soderbergh or uh, David Sims from The Atlantic and Blank Check, who we all, you know, I also have harassed. Like, it's great. And you can go talk to interesting people you've always wanted to meet. And I, I love that. Is this High Flying Birds story the reason why you have it ranked above any of the Oceans movies in your Steven Soderbergh? Because that's a wild take. And I'm never going to, like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> no, I actually is genuinely like it more than any of the Oceans movies. But I think Logan Lucky's higher than High Flying Bird, as it should be. So, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's not because I, I saw it there. I just genuinely do think it's an interesting movie. Okay. Because I love sports. Sorry, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say. You look the intricacies <laughs> of sports agents and starting a new basketball league, right? I was going to say, not trying to brag, but I did take pictures of Carl in that meeting moment. And I think it's probably the happiest I've ever seen Carl. It was like, for everyone there, it was like a truly delightful moment. <laughs> like, this is really it. This is like a human delighting in culture. It was awesome. Too, yeah. Send awesome. it to us. We, we need to post it, Christina, because I've told the story in the podcast. One of the moments that I've seen Carl the, the happiest, we were in D23 in Anaheim, and we're standing outside the Grand Californian Hotel, and Pete Doctor walks out. And Carl is just like, hey, Pete. You're literally like, I'm Carl. Like, just super, just waltz in. He's like getting into his band. He's like, no, picture. Here you go. I can't take a picture. So I, I want to put this side by side and we have a picture with him and Steven Soderbergh. Oh well, God, the funniest thing is, is Pete Doctor was getting into his car at the same time Hillary Duff was. And I was like over there, like distracting <laughs> everyone, wanting to talk to Pete Doctor, a director, while everyone else is trying to get pictures with Hillary Duff. So it was great. You got to shoot your shot. Nothing wrong yeah, with that. <laughs> You've heard their story, Christina. Of, we just talked about this, no, Carl, in the podcast, that we, we say we have dinner next with uh, Tina Fey in Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland. We sat in the table next to Tina Fey in Blue Bayou inside Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland. I don't know if I know the story. That sounds yeah. awesome, though. We were just there, and she was... So it was the weekend, it was D23, so Disney had, like, all of their celebrities in town for, like, various panels, and we were just there, and I think all the celebrities got free days at Disney with guided tour guides, so, yeah, we were there with Tina Fey next to us, just completely by happenstance, but it was, it was really weird, like, kept looking over at Liz Lemon and trying to see what she She almost over. gets our table, we, we waited extra time to sit next to the ride, like, by the water. And the, her guy just waltzed in and he's like, I need a table for Tina Fey. And they were like, right, of course. But we ended up getting our table. It was it was uh, sticky for, for us. Oh, wait, I love it. And you're like, oh my gosh, my back really hurts. I need to keep like stretching it. And you're like casually looking <laughs> at her. And you're like, yes. whoa, it's sorry. Just like it's an it's orthopedic thing. Sorry. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm thinking of stories for me. Well, I think I just got very excited every time a, a movie ended and everyone was there. Mm, yeah like all at, the at cast that time, and stuff yeah it was the peak for us of like Maisel so we saw, we saw Rachel Brosnahan in the Iron Bark one we saw Paul Bettany who is amazing in WandaVision you've both seen at least some of it he's great yeah he's he's. I, I love Paul Bettany in that role and just in general but he's really bringing his A game on TV he's having so much fun and connecting to the MCU thing it's incredible that he gets to do this because they ask him to do a voice for Iron Man for like 45 seconds mm -hmm. But anyway, it's easy to connect the dots backwards. Um, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I 
I just actually spoke at Stanford about one of my favorite Sundance stories uh, for the Paths to Power class. And it, it, it's this is like why I say like I feel like Sundance is like truly a, a like power brokering hub even beyond mm-hmm. like truly like the like cinematic world. Um, but I um, I like basically power network my way into like a dinner with Martha Stewart. And this was all like happenstance to Sundance. But I think like the whole point of the story is like. It's just, like, such an interesting place to go to meet people. Like, I, I think people just go there expecting cool things will happen, and then people manifest it into reality. So, like, <laughs> there's these cool events that happen there. But I think, um, like, Carl, I feel like I told you the story in real time last year. It was, like, basically I was, like, okay, I'm going to, like, shoot an email into the ether, and I'm going to, like, make it a sentence long, make it sound like I'm super important, I have to get into this dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was, like, a whole snowball. But, uh yeah, it's super fun. It, it's it's interesting the way that you posit yourself in an environment like that versus like how much power you actually have. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's so many like cool moments like that at Sundance. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting place for sure. So yeah, let's let's talk about this year's festival, which is not this grand networking event that it has been, which it might be in some virtual spaces or in like some film communities but for the most part i think it was harder to find community this year than in past years so i'm saying that because i'm going by hearsay i would love to hear from the primary sources that we have right here i mean they did have a virtual like like second life-esque world where you could like put your face on an avatar and go into a lounge oh my god Eton, i don't know I, yeah, it was like virtual chase on effectively. <laughs> I don't know if you mess with that. I did that briefly and I was like, oh no, this is too much even for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was really different. Um, yeah, I watched 14 movies this year and uh, like, I don't know, wow. part of, I like, I, I've been to Sundance for a few years and part of me was like, maybe I just like this because like I love like the power brokering of it. And then like this year I was like, no, you just like really like movies. Um, but yeah, I still thought it was a blast. It was like obviously for better or worse, like you could you could pause movies, you could like zoom with friends during it. Like mm-hmm. of course there were some films that like really had epic losses because you're watching at home, like really artsy stuff that deserved like a true like cinematic release. Um, but still, like I think like if you really like movies, it was still a great experience. But I'm curious for your thoughts, Etan. Yeah, I should say uh, I didn't do the virtual Sundance this year. Uh, apart from this version of the festival that existed, they also did a ton of drive-ins all over the country. And it just happened to be in Austin. The, they only had, had it here for the first three days of Sundance. And Ariel and I chose uh, a Mexican movie called Son of Monarchs. And it was great because it was our first like cinematic experience since the pandemic started. Uh, we haven't been to the theaters and we hadn't even gone to a drive-in. And it was great. Drivings are always a little bit wonky. The audio is not exactly the same, but just getting there and having like the Sundance colors on the screen, you know, and the music, um, it was exciting. They didn't have, a, you know, the interview with the director. You could go online and watch it later. But it was still interesting to feel like you were in the same place where people like went a little bit out of their way to go see these movies. We are in Texas, even though we're in Austin, and the movie, like, 
sheets on Trump and sheets on the border wall. It's a Mexican movie about a scientist that goes to NYU, actually. And he's like, I have so many of these issues and I want to go back to Mexico and come back here. And and they even make a joke, I think, about Texas. Like, they say something about being mean to Mexican people. And he's like, we're in New York. Like, this is not Texas or something like that. <laughs> uh, so it was still interesting to be, like, in that place and feel like you could feel that with people. Uh and I think I we made, Ariel and I made kind of a conscious decision to say, you know, the virtual might not work for us. But I think when we were there, we were like, dang it, we, we should have tried it. Um, because <laughs> I, I don't know if I would have put my face in an avatar, but I, I, I would have been, that would have been interesting. I do think it's really interesting the shift in how everyone is thinking about streaming and like virtual events like this now since the start of the pandemic. Because if we look at South by Southwest, last year South by was one of the earliest COVID casualties. And one of the things that happened there was Amazon offered to basically put any movie that wanted to be shown as part of a virtual South by on Amazon Prime for a little bit. People could engage hmm. with it. Uh, there were also other like VOD rental options that were kind of floated as well. And it really just didn't play. Like, a lot of people just pulled their movies. A lot of them haven't been shown yet. There's just been a lot of weirdness around a lot of those films. that, they, Because they thought that if movies went to streaming or to rentals like that so early, it would kind of destroy the actual cultural value of those movies. And they wouldn't be these impressive objects. It's all about the scarcity of the festivals showing and building hype. But... We've moved on from that where like a lot of this award season has played out virtually with virtual screeners. Now we're actually like at points where we're debuting new movies at festivals virtually. And it's just much more democratic than usual. But I, I think that people are, I think, catching on and, and really starting to look at films as something that does exist in a couch first environment right now for better and for worse. I totally agree. I, I think, um, What's been interesting about this is, like, showing the intentionality of movies. Like, I feel like it's make, made me, I guess, living through the pandemic, take the experience of even going to, like, a move, like, like not even just Sundance, but going to a theater makes me appreciate it so much more. And so, to your point about everything being online and making it democratic, like, I've had family members who would, like, never even be, like, like, I go to Sundance every year, but they've never been, like, can I go with you? Like, what do you see? But then being like, hey, what tickets did you buy? I'm going to buy stuff too and watch it. Like, I think that's so awesome. Like, I'm all about, like, if people really want to see it, like, make it as frictionless as possible. Um, so I think that's, like, something really cool that I hope we can hold on to um, and keep that precedent going forward. It's, yeah, it's exactly what I was going to say. It feels like the best takeaway of this year is that the this, at least Sundance, is loses it's losing one of that part that I didn't love, but that it's kind of what made it Sundance of gatekeepery. You need to be able to fly to Park City and mm -hmm. pay the prices for hotels that you need to get and figure out the Ubers that are super difficult and to just be like, see it on your couch. Be part of it from home. I think that's great. Okay, Christina. So you watched 14 movies this year. So I want to ask you, what are some of the things that you would recommend people to look out for? And also, if there is anything from last year that is, you know, just making their way into, like, the streaming services or something that you watched that you loved, that you, like, what was what's the best things you've watched over the last 12 months 
sometimes related. Oh man, I don't know if I can recall last year perfectly and what's come out, but I can speak to this year because it's super duper fresh. Um, but there's so much great stuff last, or this year. And I should say, I bias for the documentary, for better or worse. Um, I know we're not all documentary lovers, <laughs> not trying to name names, but Carl. Um, but that's where I kind of slant. So some of the movies I really adored this year. I loved Wild Indian. Um, it was a great film. I really don't want to give too much away about it, but I think it has to deal with like a lot of, I mean, per the name, a lot of interesting intergenerational identity issues with like the Native American community. And I think especially showing a film like that at Sundance, which takes place, I mean, when you see a movie at Sundance, there's always an introduction acknowledging the Native American populations that have lived there, rightly so. Um, I thought it was a really special place for that movie to come out. It was just fabulous. Um, I also really, really loved, um, uh, I mean, man, where do I start? I have like a list in front of me and I'm still like overwhelmed looking at this. Um, I thought Summer of Soul, uh, which is Questlove's documentary, was really awesome. And I think a lot of people might be incredulous hearing about someone so famous and having their name attached to a film at Sundance. But it really was worth its weight in gold. Like, I really don't want to spoil too much about the film, but... It's like a great story about this lost event in music history and like some of the biggest names were attached to it and it really says so much and relates to like even the current like Black Lives Matter movement. So if you love music and you love documentaries, you should totally, totally check it out. Um, and then I think the last one, and this is the film that I think is going to probably be like the most like commercially known of this year's Sundance, is Together Together. Um, it has like a star-studded cast it's a sweet rom-com. It's also quite woke. Its message is still, uh, it's a film about a man who gets a surrogate. Um, and basically the biases that women who offer that and men who want to be single parents face. I think it had a lot of really great heart. I think like in 12 to 18 months, everyone's going to be watching this movie. Um, so it's one I'd look out for too. Um, but there are so many great things from this year. Um, I could wax poetic. The documentary point is something that hasn't come up at all, which is not when I say documentary point, I'm not talking about whether I like documentaries or not, but rather uh, Sundance is really such a great point for seeing documentaries theatrically. Like most documentaries don't get a theatrical release. Like even the biggest ones might go to Netflix for a little bit, but they're not shown anywhere. So if you're a documentary lover, this is a place that you can actually see these things exhibited in the proper format and it might be the only place so that's like a really special part of Sundance is actually seeing those documentaries portrayed totally I couldn't agree more and like so many I mean it Sundance is like it's one of the first or the first you could argue like big festivals of the year but for a documentary it's kind of it um and there's so many like gorgeous like found footage kind of documentaries like to your point like this is the only chance you're going to see it cinematically so it's super special if you geek out on documentaries like me yeah i think the, the two big ones from last year i remember creep camp netflix i think is there which is great and then talking about the commercialization of, of uh, Sundance, Miss Americana and Taylor Swift. We were there the weekend where she was there and it was like ridiculous. Everyone wanted to watch Miss Americana, even though it was coming out on Netflix like three days later. But it was still like the thing. We got invaded by Taylor Swift fans. That's true. I think those are great ones. I would say, yeah, Christina, I can talk again. Son of Monarchs. 
I really, really like it. It's one of those that it's it's very visually pleasing. For me, like the definition of an independent movie where the plot, it's important, but it's all about the visual story and the feelings and the emotions. Uh, and it's great. So I recommend it also for anyone who wants to watch it. So I'm looking through the notes you posted on here, your very copious notes. And I, I see that you did a new frontier activity as well. How did that work virtually? Oh my gosh, yes. So um, I bought a $25 all-encompassing ticket to do New Frontier. Um, and I think to your point, Carl, like in a normal Sundance festival, you get a New Frontier pass and like you go to like some random strip mall in the outskirts of Park City and you like hope that you can get into like a VR experience and you can't get in and it's such a bummer and you're like bummed, but it is what it is. This year is so different. Um this year, if you had a, a like an Oculus, you had even a phone, if you had a desktop, they had all these different experiences you could access. And I thought it was so much better than the standard Sundance. Like I had a total mm-hmm. blast with New Frontier this year. Whereas like in previous years, it was just like, if you really care about seeing movies, like you, you can't really do the New Frontier experience. Um, so the experience that, I mean, I did a few of them this year, but I did write notes for one that I, like particularly moved me. Um, but it was called, what was it called? Uh, oh, yeah, Shopping Malls of Turan. Um, so basically, I, there's like a viral Instagram account a lot of people may or may not have heard of called Rich Kids of Turan. But per the name, it's like an account that amalgamates content by like very privileged kids of wealthy people in Turan. Um, but what was very cool about this New Frontier experience is that um, – it was like a dual screen experience. So on your TV, you'd be projecting one experience, but then you'd have an Instagram account open. And it would be, as soon as this event went live, it was time time boxed, um, a live feed. So their Instagram would go live. But then there are moments of it where someone on the TV would be like, okay, go to this photo on this date, and you're going to start scrolling down. And like, I can't, it, this was like an hour long experience. There were so many moments where I would like get goosebumps. And it was like such an incredibly interesting way of telling a story. Um, I thought it was so special. Like, and this was like something where like they took the format of people being at home and they like really did something interesting with it. I should say too that like this experience, uh, I think predates the pandemic. And I think they got invited to Sundance to do it again. But this was like another great example of like, like art like the medium is the message like you can make it work if it's like unique to the format um but i thought it was so cool uh it was awesome so maybe in the future sundance we'll try to do something kind of hybrid like this but i thought it was so much better than the standard new frontier experience that's awesome Uh, i was just really curious how that would work and it sounds like it's something they should look into improving in the future that that's awesome so we usually try to wrap up our episodes with an ask us anything question, which is a definitely obviously influenced by our time at the GSB. And so I have an AUA question for all of us, which is what is your like one Sundance tip? If someone was to go to Sundance 2022 and go to Park City, what's the one thing you would tell them to do? I'm going to be very on brand. And hopefully also give Christina some time to think. <laughs> Spend 30 minutes understanding the ticket system. <laughs> understanding the passes. Understanding where the ticket booth 
is like the central ticket center is in Park City. Like, if anyone has any questions, you should email Christina, first of all. But second, like, understanding that they are paper tickets and that you can exchange them for things that are open and the windows where new availability comes out. Like, it's incredible how after I was there and I saw it, how simple, quote unquote, was to, to get for most things that I wanted just for, by being kind of on time and in the right place at the right time. Like, even people from, from that came in our group were like, oh, how do you get tickets to Iron Park? You didn't have that last week. Or how do you get tickets to whatever? And I was like, well, you just try for like a minute and it works. And I feel like it makes all the difference. And I know both of you think like this, but it's incredible how much it impacts the experience that you have. And by putting that effort, everything else becomes so, so much smoother. So my tip is going to be very logistical. That's a, I think that's a great tip. I think just like being on top of it um, and you know, managing your time and resources is huge. I think um, my tip, kind of an extension of that is like, frankly, like be pretty shameless, like do your research. Like you can find cool parties by like, just go on Facebook and look up like events in Park City the week of Sundance. And it sounds so obvious, but there's like so much stuff like that. Like DM people, email people, like people are there to like network and like be seen. So like take advantage of that. Like even if you don't feel like you're an important person, like everyone's there with super, super high levels of intentionality. So should I challenge people like be a little bit more shameless than you think you should be? You should be shameless. You deserve it. Yeah, be like Carl. Just flex that you have a first edition Steve Jobs that is out. <laughs> be Carl with the first signature. edition. Exactly. <laughs> that that could be my pickup line or my uh, opener whenever I am talking to filmmakers at Sundance. Pickup line sounds a bit creepy in the context of Hollywood. So yes. just forget yeah. I said that. Uh, I think to add on to the logistical point here, just my big point is don't try and use Uber. Like just give up. Like if... If you have to get from point A to point B during the day, except at the very beginning of the day or the very end of the day, just plan on taking a bus or walking because the Uber situation, you're going to get stuck waiting 45 minutes for an Uber that doesn't come. Like, just don't do it. It's a weird transit nightmare. So try and stay as close as you can to the main part of the festival and figure out where you need to be at what time and how you can use public transit to get there. I love ending episodes in very, very specific notes. It's great. It's super it's good. True. That's what it's, it's all true. about. Yeah, well, wow. Christina, thank you again for being on. We'd love to having you. Is there anything you want to plug before we sign off? I guess I'll always just plug I write. So follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, mainly right for Forbes, uh, but um, I'll have some cool stuff coming out this month, so please read along and DM me, email me, whatever your thoughts. I love to hear them. So thank you so much for having me. This was such a blast, you too. Thanks for coming. This was great. It means a lot to us that you shared your... Well, you always share your knowledge with everyone, but thank you for sharing it with our listeners this week. We hope to we'll have you back, for sure. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to rate, subscribe, tell your friends, follow us on Twitter, and we'll be talk to you. We'll talk to you next week about theme parks. Yeah, later. Bye.